This is Ari Koretsky, and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. We are here with Rabbi Kerry Friedman. Rabbi Friedman is one of the most interesting and unique rabbinic personalities out there, and very excited to welcome him to the program. How are you, Rabbi Friedman? I'm doing very well. Thank God. Thank you for asking. Wonderful. And it's really exciting to have you. I want to get to all the different fascinating aspects of your life. Uh, I know that there's an FBI angle, maybe a Batman angle in there somewhere, and we'll get to all of that. Tell me first a little bit about where you're from, where you grew up, and so forth. Well, I, uh, I grew up in West Hartford, Connecticut. My wife and I both are from West Hartford. Uh, my mother, she should live me well, is a Holocaust survivor. Well, we grew up in a house uh, speaking Yiddish and keenly aware of uh, some of the unique features of being Jewish. My father, she rest in peace, was a uh, professor of electrical engineering at one of the local universities. Um, I went to day school. I went to the Hebrew Academy of Greater Hartford. And that's where I met my wife to be. I aspired to be... Like my dad, I became an electrical engineer. I went to the University of Hartford in town. I went to Columbia University afterwards. I have a master's in electrical engineering. I went to work as an engineer. I worked for a number of uh, companies as an electrical engineer. While I was doing that, I was teaching part-time. My wife and I, Marsh and I were both teaching in some of the local Hebrew school kind of programs, like high school programs. We, at one point, we were living back in our hometown of West Hartford, and we were teaching in one of the, uh, there's a Hebrew high school program for kids who are in public school. And we were teaching them the traditional aspect of things. Talmud and Tanakh and uh, Jewish ethics and things like that. And I was shocked, overwhelmed by the power of teaching Torah. I was working during the day as an engineer and it was great. It was great. But at night uh, and Sunday mornings, we were able to interact with young people and impact their lives, change their lives in extraordinarily positive ways. And I said, that's what I want to do. And I've been involved in some aspect, some kind of outreach or other ever since then. What do you think it was that caused you to want to do this as a full-time job? I mean, you could have continued in your role as a Hebrew school teacher, been a wonderful lay leader, I imagine, and so forth. What was so alluring about this that you pivoted midstream to do it full-time? Right. It's an excellent question. I was working during the day as an engineer, and I made a nice living, and I was doing some, I, I tended to work, I worked in two different companies over the course of about five years. We worked in military electronics and we were using high tech kinds of things. And it was pretty cool, but so much of what we did, everything, really everything that we did, the goal was that it would never be used. There was a certain kind of uh, dissuasive power that it possessed that the United States is well-armed. And philosophically, I totally get that. I subscribe to that idea. It makes perfect sense. But to be working so hard with the sense that I hope it's never used, it was perhaps like the removal of a negative. And then at night and on weekends, we were interacting with these young people and we saw positive changes that they were making. They were at a point in high school, they were just about to graduate. A lot of them were seniors. They were about to making life changes. What they should do, like the kind of lives that they would live. And we would invite them for Shabbatot. They'd be in our house. We'd be talking with them. And a number of the young people decided, well, instead of going to college, they were going to take a year and go to Israel. They'd go to seminary, to yeshiva. And it was an amazing thing to see the changes. Now, all these years later, it's a lot of years ago, we see the families that they've created. 
And that was something that was, and to think that we had that power to influence them for the good. Once I experienced that, I was, there was no turning back. My parents were very supportive. My wife was very, very supportive. Really? Went back to uh, yeshiva, uh, got smicha, and we switched gears and uh, went into outreach work. We've been in, like I said, a lot of different contexts, uh, different venues are doing outreach work over the years, and they've all been very, very rewarding. I have to imagine that, as we all know, when you're doing something as a labor of love, it can be enjoyable and something that you appreciate. But of course, once you turn something into the source of your income, what you rely on to butter your bread, so to speak, to put food on the table, it runs the risk of losing its luster. Has that been something that you've struggled with? And if so, how have you contended with it? <laughs> <laughs> well, let me let me first try to figure out if the statute of limitations has uh, expired. <laughs> Uh, I would say this. There's a famous idea when we, when we talk about the paraduma, the red heifer, I guess it's called. So uh, it has a curious, a paradoxical quality that the concoction prepared by the ashes that they use with the ashes, um, it has the power that it's metahir. It can purify the people upon whom it's sprinkled. And the person doing the sprinkling goes into a state of tuma, is in a state of ritual impurity. So uh, Rabbi Hirsch and others point out that sometimes that's the way it is with great endeavors, great social movements, that when the people who are the beneficiaries of those movements, they're elevated, they're ennobled. It's a wonderful thing for humankind, perhaps in general. But the people sometimes who are presiding over that process, they take a hit. So I think it's a beautiful image. Uh, There have been moments in my career where some of the magic, uh, just an opportunity to kind of call it into question, to wonder. I was doing a program when I was a kid. I went to NCSY. I went to other kind of outreach programs, and I loved them. I really loved them. In adulthood, at one point, uh, I was involved in something. They were running it, and as everything reached its crescendo, I, I happened to look over, and I saw the person running it. I see him giving stage direction, and he's like, you know, he's raising his hand to this person. He's signaling to another, and, and I realized it was a very well-orchestrated kind of show, and for a moment, I thought, oh, my gosh, like, you know, what's going on here? I have to struggle with it. I think all people who are involved in outreach work have to be very honest. They have to be vigilant always because it can become something dangerous. God forbid it can become something. It's a very heady experience. People change their lives because of what I say and do, what I tell them to do. And we have to be cautious all the time to make sure that our motives are as pure as can possibly be. I'm always happy to walk a path with anybody who'd like to walk that path. We can learn Torah together. We can discuss these things. But I'm never going to assert my will on them and try to get them to do something that uh, they, with clear thinking, wouldn't want to do. Wonderful. So take me through what was the first context, as you called it, in which you were able to employ these newly minted skills uh, that you had acquired in rabbinical school? Where was your first stop after leaving the exotic world of electrical engineering? Well, the uh, the last part of Smicha was in uh, was in Israel. We were there for a number of years, and uh, we had four kids. I think at that point we were living in Jerusalem, and I was teaching in various places, and it was uh, it was great. And an opportunity came uh, my way, an offer to go to uh, Durham, North Carolina, to do outreach on the Duke University campus. So uh, we were working real hard to set up our lives in Jerusalem, and uh, I had some jobs in places, and it was a work in progress. Uh, the person who brought us the offer. My wife and I were, were meeting with, uh, with him, and he made the comment that, uh, gosh, there's not a lot of Torah opportunities in Durham, North Carolina, on the Duke University campus, or at UNC Chapel Hill, just uh, six, seven miles away, or in that general area. Research triangle. Uh, yeah. Exactly. So uh, he said, you know, you can really make a difference there. And I, 
I spoke with my my wife said to me, you know, perhaps you have an obligation to go and do that. Um, she's she's very high minded. <laughs> she's <laughs> realistic than I am. I spoke to my Rosh Hashiva and he said to me, you know, people like you here in Jerusalem are a dime a dozen, a dime a hundred, a dime a thousand. He said, any teaching job that I had, he said, there are many people waiting to jump into line to take the job. He said, but to go down there, he said, and put an observant head on a pillow every night and to live there, bring up a family and to make opportunities available for people to learn Torah if they want. Uh, he said, that's kind of huge. And who else is going to do that? So we went there. We went, we moved to uh, to Durham. And before I left, I spoke with a number of Roshi Yeshiv, a number of Rabbanim in Jerusalem. And one of them said to me, I remember this very clearly. He said to me, when you show up there, you've got the Torah of truth. He said, they're going to melt in your path. They're going to just melt when you share with them your Torah. <laughs> so I said to myself, hey, that's awesome. I can't wait. I got Torah Sambis. I'm going to show up there. So that, that's not quite. <laughs> so I showed up armed with my Torah MS and people were like, you're a dodo bird. I mean, people like you went out, like you've been extinct for, you know, a long time. Like, what, what are you talking about? One young lady, I was giving a class, I was giving a talk and she said to me, you're like one of those pilots, those Japanese pilots who are on, a, on an island in the Pacific. I realize 50, 60 years later that World War II has long been over. She said, you're still fighting some battle. You guys lost it a long time ago. So I said, there's something wrong here. They're not melting in the face of my Taurus Emmis. So what I did, uh, my wife and I talked about this. I was looking for some kind of a strategy, a hook. And really the only grounding that I have in pop culture is a lifelong obsession with the Batman. I am obsessed with Batman, always have been since as far back as I can remember. And I have a collection of Batman memorabilia, all kinds of uh, crazy things, comics and all kinds of everything, second to none. What do you think generated that obsession? What was that all about? Well, I've thought about this a lot over the course of my life, and uh, it's in recent years I have some clarity. I mentioned before my mother's a Holocaust survivor, so uh, she emerged from the war. She survived the war with her nuclear family intact. Uh, her, wow. Both her parents and her brother, everybody survived, albeit in different places in Europe. All of them went through horrific kind of experiences. But my mom, when she was about eight, when the Nazis marched into Vilna, um, in anticipation of that, the neighbors next door, neighbors who had been neighbors for about four or five generations, they had lived, these, these two families had next to each other for generations. They came in and my mother watched as they savagely butchered a number of her family members, aunts and uncles and cousins who were in the house. So that's traumatic. And she saw a lot of things during the war, as did my grandmother, Allah Shalom. My grandmother always lived with us. And I grew up from the time I was real little, there was that sense hanging over the cloud of the Holocaust. So for me, there were a couple of ways for me to process through that trauma. I could have probably addressed that, confronted that directly with the implications of my own family. For me, it was easier as a little kid, uh, three, four, five, six, to lock onto Batman. Bruce Wayne was a little boy. He was uh, walking down the alley with his parents coming out of watching Zorro. And someone stepped out of the shadows and killed his two parents. And the story is, how does one deal with trauma like that? How does one take such a stunning defeat, such a horrible, horrible experience of evil and tragedy and turn that into some kind of a victory? How do you triumph over adversity like that? So it was a lot easier for me to process through these ideas with characters who were made up of ink dots on a page. I think that saved my sanity. So I've spent a good part of my life thinking about the deeper aspects, the philosophical aspects of Batman, and also enjoying like, you know, the cool parts of Batman. So I think that's where the obsession comes from, but I've always had it. So there we were in North Carolina, and I had Torres MS, which so far really hadn't been all that successful. And Marsh and I decided that uh, I would use some of that obsession like that. We might trademark. So I went into class 
every class from then on, I would walk in and I would have a page from a Batman comic book, or I'd have some Batman figurine statue, my Batman alarm clock or some cape uh, on Purim reluctantly. <laughs> Those kind of fun people. I don't do too well with Purim, but my mom had a tailor make a Batman costume for me. So uh, I would wear it on, you know, the, the sacrifices we make for outreach work. Seriously. During the rest of the year, so I would come in, I'd have like a page from a Batman comic book. And in that page, there would be depicted some kind of an ethical struggle, some issue. And I would engage the students in conversation. Or I would, you know, I'd walked in one day with a Batman, my Batman alarm clock, which I used for years. It's a statue of Batman. And next to it is a little gizmo. And at the right time, it would say, Gotham City is in trouble. Call for Batman. And there'd be a big bat signal shining on the uh, ceiling of my room. (laughs) I I woke up to that for years until my wife mentioned that she thought I was becoming very stressed out from because I would jump out of bed every morning and be a little jangle. (laughs) And I, you know, used it at the beginning of class. I would do some kind of crazy thing. The kids would roll their eyes and they would laugh. They'd smirk. They would snicker. But once they laughed, I had them. Once we're laughing together, so then the conversation, the ice has been broken. So I would give them this page and there'd be this ethical dilemma. And I would say, how would you resolve it? Like, how do, where do you come down on this issue? And they would start arguing. And these are really, really smart kids. The kids are incredible. At UNC Ch- uh, Chapel Hill, I was teaching there as well a little while after, and they were just fabulous also. So uh, they would start arguing. And Jeff and Stephanie and Eric and Gary and the Jessica, like they would start, they would start taking these philosophical positions, arguing really, really smart kids, good kids, great kids. Then I would hand out a page from the Talmud or some other primary text. And I would say to them, it's a little bit more forbidding looking, but take it easy. I said to them, the ethical dilemma that we're talking about, I said, is exactly the ethical dilemma taking place here, but on a level a thousand times deeper. And Eric, the position that you're championing, that's the position of the Bali Tosfos. And Jessica, what you're saying is the Ramban. And Gary, what you're saying is, and suddenly these people, Eric wouldn't know the Ramban if he tripped over his turban. <laughs> battling away to defend the honor and the position, the integrity of these positions. And it was devastatingly effective. And it was fun. So over the course of the years that we were two, kids would come to me as they were graduating. They would say, I really love those introductions. Can I have the notes to them? So I put it off for a long time. Finally, finally, after a number of years, I put those introductions together and I created the book, Wisdom from the Batcave. It was about 20 chapters with those ethical lessons. It's, I identify the ethical lessons that emerge from the Batman mythology. And they're all solid Torah lessons. And they naturally flow into conversations, Torah conversations. That worked. And the kids loved it. The book has been out for a number of years now. I think it's almost 10 years and it's sold in comic book stores around the country. And people who wouldn't be reading philosophy books or Musser books will read the, uh, you know, they'll read this and they'll get in touch with me and I can have conversations with people. It's outreach. It's a little different than the conventional model, but it's a wonderful outreach tool. And I get a chance to teach Jewish ethics to a lot of people out there who might otherwise not be engaging with these kind of ideas. Must be very exciting for you that the new Batman television show, the young Bruce Wayne is played by a religious Jewish kid in LA. Correct. My, uh, one of my colleagues was, uh, he was attending a bar mitzvah. I think and this young man was there. So he said to him, I got to give you this book. So he ran out to his car and he had a copy of Wisdom of the Back. And he gave it to him and he said, you know, there's so many reasons that you might like this. So I was, and then he got in touch with me and he, uh, he told me that he had done that. And I was pretty happy to hear that. 
uh, the book has taken on a life of its own and it's made its way to some crazy places. The History Channel a number of years ago contacted me and they were creating a documentary. I think it's called Batman Unmasked, The Psychology of the Dark Knight. And they were discussing, I think this was between the first and the second of the Christopher Nolan Batman movies. So they asked me to appear on the documentary and talk about the spiritual dimension of Batman. And it was on the, it played on History Channel for a long time, and it's on some director's cut or Blu-ray or something tacked on, I think, to the second Christopher Nolan movie. So the book has been very well received. Um, somebody actually a few years ago read the book, a, a documentary maker, and he made a documentary about the power of storytelling in general and the power of the Batman mythology in particular. And he used the springboard for the documentary was my book. And I was on there and uh, it was shown theatrically in theaters all over the country, all over the world. Those kind of things are really fun. And it's all outreach work just defined a little differently. If you had to choose one, maybe two of the most salient lessons that emerged from the Batman story, are there any specific lessons that really stand out for you? There are. I think that there, there are three that really define the character. There are others, but these are the three main ones. I think the first one is the one we were talking about, that how does one triumph over adversity? He can't bring his parents back, but the ability to, you know, to, to, to transform that tragedy, to use it as a springboard for accomplishing greatness in the world to ensure that other people not have to go through that kind of trauma, that's one of the main lessons of the Batman for me. Number two, I think, is the infinite potential of every human being. The Batman has no special powers. Right. He's been doing a lot of push-ups and a lot of sit-ups and he's studying chemistry and all kinds of different disciplines. And with the sheer force of his will, he's able to accomplish greatness in the world. And I've used that as a model in my life. I've tried real hard. Um, I've pursued the martial arts and uh, you know, the engineering degree originally was an expression of that. I was gonna become a scientist and create all kinds of things. Uh, one of my children as a kid, I have a book, The Batman Encyclopedia, and at one point there's an entry that talks about the different skills that Bruce Wayne acquired over the years. So there's a list and there's hundreds of these skills. So this kid of mine, one of my sons, he photocopied it many, many years ago. He was probably 10 or so. Uh, he photocopied these couple of pages. And a few years ago, I was down in his room and I was putting some laundry in there or something like that. And I looked over on his night table, there was that list and there were, I can't tell you how many dozens of the entries uh, there was a check next to them. He's earned very, very high degree, a uh, black belt in Shaolin Kung Fu. Um, he's taught himself how to be a locksmith, uh, how to whittle, how to juggle, how to, I mean, the list goes on and on. He took it seriously. So, so did I. But the fact is that as many times, and I think this is a fundamental Torah idea, I think this is the fundamental Torah idea, the notion of the godless ha'odam, the greatness of the human being. However many times a person goes to the well, there's always more to be gone from there. If we're created in the image of God, God gives us an infinite potential to achieve greatness, to ennoble ourselves, to elevate ourselves. And when, he, when the Torah says, well, our job is to emulate God, we might think that's such an unnatural job description. But in point of fact, the Torah tells us it's not. We're created in the image of God. We have, if you, poke, if you pop the hood, you look underneath, we have an infinite reservoir of potential. And if we just keep going back, we keep making demands on ourselves, there's always more there. I think that's one of the lessons of the Batman. Um, I think the third lesson of the Batman mythology is that people have a need to be heroic. So many times we spend our lives kind of just doing mundane things. We don't realize that our job, God put us here to be the heroes of our lives. We can be heroes for the people around us. There's something that needs to be done and only we can do it. And if we play to the lowest common denominator, if we make very little demands on ourselves, we think to ourselves, I'm going to just hang out by the pool uh, and eat ice cream sandwiches and I'm not going to do something. 
So what happens, I think, is the human soul very quickly withers and something fundamental in the person dies. And when we decide, we set our sights on something higher and we say, I'm going to accomplish. There's work to be done in this world. This is a world shrouded in darkness. It's unbelievable. In every corner, there are pockets, there's all kinds of darkness and it can be illuminated by any one of us. The people who you know, read the Batman book, I hope, who like Batman, and there's an army of them out there. Wherever they are, they live in a world unique to themselves. Like, I'm not there, you're not there, other people aren't there. And if every person were to illuminate their little pocket of the universe, the whole world would be lit up. And I think that's one of the main lessons of the Batman. That's beautiful. So I surmise, given that we're not speaking with you being in Durham, uh, at some point you did leave. And I must say, I'm in favor of that since I am a rabbi at Maryland. I have to tell you, you know, the whole Duke thing, I can give it uh, begrudging respect, especially now that Maryland is no longer in the ACC. But but, uh, when did you leave Durham and where did you go next? Well, we were there for a number of years and uh, our main reason for leaving, we loved it. And the people that we met, the students, the faculty, people who lived in town, doctors associated with the Duke University Medical Center, they were brilliant people. And learning Torah with them was just, was wonderful. They were challenging me, even if they had never learned before, they would bring their intellect. My job was to make the technical issues, the difficulties, transparent, the Aramaic, all of the kind of technical, the jargon. So I would do that. And then once there was a level playing field, they would engage, they would jump into the Milchamta Shel Torah, the battle of Torah, and they would engage me and they gave me a run for my money. I don't think I've ever learned as intensely as I did there. But my kids needed chinuch. They needed to be in day schools. They had been in a day school in Raleigh and the people there do a heroic job keeping a day school running, but it went up through sixth grade. And my kids needed to continue with their own sophisticated Torah learning. So we moved back to New Jersey. We had lived here many years ago, briefly after we first got married. So we moved. I became the rabbi of a small town in New Jersey, uh, Linden, Linden, New Jersey. There was a yeshiva there as well. We brought that yeshiva in. We moved into the community. We looked at the building. It's a huge building. And there was a good part of it that was, uh, was empty. And I knew from my experience in my own learning career, in my teaching, my spreading Torah career, uh, that nothing brings energy and life the way Torah does. So we hadn't even moved into Linden. I already let out words throughout the yeshiva world. I wanted a yeshiva to come in. And uh, a number of Roshi Yeshiva and Roshi Kolo contacted me. And I, I interviewed, I spoke with a number of them. And I met a giant of a human being, Rabbi Gershon Newman. Uh, he's the Rosh Yeshiva of Yeshiva Zichron Lema. He's larger than life. I've met very few people in the world ever in my life who are on his level of his Torah knowledge and his sensitivity, his greatness of character. The more Torah he knows, the, you know, his, his greatness of character matches that. The purity of his character is a wonderful man. Beautiful. So he brought the yeshiva in. Uh, we were in the building. We were there. We had arrived in the there for a couple of months before the yeshiva came. And that was something which gave life to the community, gave life to me, to my family. Very, very inspirational for my children. The, the young men who learn there are absolutely just incredible. And they, they become very worthy Torah scholars, uh, disciples of a very worthy Torah scholar. So it's a great place. So we were there and I was, uh, I was teaching in the shul and in the area around. And I happened to be speaking at one point in Linden at some kind of a community event I was asked to represent the uh, the show, the congregation, and I didn't realize it, but the chief of the behavioral science unit of the FBI was in attendance. He had some connection to the particular event that was taking place, and in the course of his travels, traveling from Quantico to uh, to New York, he, I guess, decided to attend. 
And I was speaking, I knew my audience was a very broad, a general kind of an audience. They weren't going to have a lot of Torah knowledge. If I was speaking Yiddish to them, my first language, that probably wouldn't have gone over so well. So I modulated my remarks. I chose my remarks. I crafted them accordingly. I spoke in English in whole sentences. <laughs> I was talking about general kind of terms and I was expressing them in very universal kind of terms. So uh, the chief came up to me afterwards, introduced himself, and he said, what you were just talking about was very deep. It was very inspirational. It was very universal, the way it was expressed. He said it was, a, it was spiritual rather than religious in the tone. He said, can you do that on a consistent basis? Do you have a lot of that kind of material? So I, you know, why, why do you ask? So he said, well, the behavioral science, you know, we're trying to, we're running a program. We're trying to identify tools for intentional spirituality, to help police officers replenish their sources of idealism and integrity. Police officers come into the career with a very great reservoir of idealism and integrity. They want to make a difference in the world. They have all kinds of high-minded spiritual aspirations to make the world a better place. And then they see and they do things that drain them very quickly. And they can become very frustrated and bitter. They can feel betrayed. Somehow their aspirations weren't realized. So the behavioral science unit, these are insightful people. They've been creating amazing stuff over the course of many decades using the behavioral sciences to support the fight against crime. So they decided to identify tools for intentional spirituality. And they've been working on it for a number of years. And he said to me, what you were saying, he said, I saw the immediate value of it, of the idea that I had shared for law enforcement officers. He said, do you have a lot more? So that began a conversation. I went down to Quantico a few days later. I began going there off and on over the course of about two years. And ultimately, I wrote a course called Spiritual Survival for Law Enforcement, which is a course that has been given at the FBI Academy uh, more or less uh, on a steady basis since 2005. And I wrote another book called Spiritual Survival for Law Enforcement, <laughs> which, distills the, uh, which distills the ideas. And they're ultimately, if you were to look at the book, you would identify in every paragraph, you say, wait a second, I know the Torah source for that. What I did was I distilled it into terms that are universal. I'm not heavy at all. I don't mention, I don't talk about any of the Torah sources and I express it in ways that are spiritual rather than religious to make sure I'm very careful never to cross or to violate any church state requirements. I always stay on this side of the line and express the things in ways that all police officers, their families, their leaders, police executives, chaplains, everybody can benefit from. And it all traces back to the time that we were in Linden and that talk that I was giving. So we were in Linden for a number of years um, I was working with the uh, FBI part-time, and then I began to broaden my uh, activities to the law enforcement community in general. And then at some point or other, we left the show and we moved to Psaic, which is where we live now for the last 10 years. And nowadays, I work full-time as a police trainer. I've done a number of things. I was teaching in different places, and I still teach in an outreach center in South Jersey. It's called Ramon in East Windsor. Um, so I teach there a few times a month. I go down and I teach. So I enjoy teaching straight Torah. I have to do that every once in a while as well, or I would get a little rusty. What I really am nowadays is I'm kind of like a shul rabbi, but my congregants just aren't Jews. So uh, that works. It's interesting you talk about staving off burnout and things like that. It echoes very much with what we talked about earlier with rabbis and their need to replenish their reservoir of resources. Do you see any parallels, and have you tried to translate that to the clergy, Jewish or otherwise? That's a very insightful observation and question, because we run parallel. It's frightening how closely we track their kind of problems. I have seen studies, first responders, police officers, firefighters, EMTs, 
they have some of the highest rates of they deal with stress and trauma in our society. It's second to nobody. But running real close are clergy members. And I've seen that in my own career, the kind of dangers, the problems to which police officers succumb. When I was interviewing police officers down in Quantico, I would be interviewing, I would listen to them for long hours, day after day for weeks, months on end. Um, And they would be telling me about their frustrations. I would think, all of this is naggingly familiar to me. And then at some point it hit me, wait, those are my stresses. Those are my, we, sometimes it's secondary for us, secondary trauma, or sometimes it's primary. But anybody who is in a helping profession, who is helping people and dealing with their foibles and their weirdnesses and all kinds of tragedies, and who has to be on. And in outreach, I would say, I mean, I'm, you'll, you'll confirm this, I think. When you're in doing outreach work, you're on, not at 100%, but at about 950%. You're just on. And then afterwards, we crash. When we come, when the, when the curtain comes down, we go back to heal. As high up as we had been, we're that low. We become lethargic, kind of paralyzed. And that has its root in the autonomic nervous system. When we're on, the sympathetic branch is in, engaged. And when we're off, the parasympathetic branch kicks in to heal us, to allow us to heal. Police officers have that. That's what they call the hypervigilance biological roller coaster. And outreach workers have it also. So I have given programs for people in outreach, for rabbis, using the same materials. You can imagine, like the idea would be you take the book. If I gave you a Word document of spiritual survival for law enforcement, and you said, find and replace all. And everywhere where it said law enforcement officer, you put outreach worker, and then you replaced all of them. You change the title. It would be almost probably 99.9999% of it would be relevant for you and me. It's very resonant what you describe in terms of that cycle. You know, when I first start working with someone, they'll see me like after an event and I'll be just like catatonic and absolutely shocked because nobody has ever seen me in anything less than the most active state. Like, I did not know that you ever stopped. It's like when, as soon as everyone walks out the door, I completely stop. And it's a, it's a really interesting to hear sort of the clinical term for that, uh, for that phenomenon. Uh, I'm so curious, did you have any formal psychological training? I mean, so much of this is really overlapping with with psychology and and uh, you know as a rabbi for example in the work that I do I try very much to be careful not to cross that border into the psychological and sort of clinical evaluation or treatment because that's not my territory and that's dangerous territory for me and I need to make sure that students are are receiving appropriate professional help in those areas when warranted, and it often is. How have you navigated that, and and did you ever compensate for that part of your education? Wow. (laughs) You ask good questions, and somehow when I'm telling you a story, I I say a a bajillion words, and you narrow right in, you focus right in on the issue. So I got myself into some trouble with this, because when I started, and I was interviewing police officers, and I was trying to, it took me about two years to understand the unique reality, you know, the, the world in which cops live. I didn't know anything about it. And when it finally hit me, that was the hardest part of all, understanding their world. When I finally had the sense of, oh, I, I get what's going on. So then I said to the chief, okay, I'll be back soon. I need some time. And what I, what I needed to do was to take the totality of my understanding of what they were dealing with and pass it through the prism of my Torah knowledge. I wish I knew more Torah, but whatever Torah I know, whatever material I know from the Torah literature, I passed those impressions that I had of the law enforcement challenges through the prism of Torah, and I produced what would become the course and this book, etc. The book has been out there for a while, and it's used all over in all kinds of different contexts. And I get emails and letters from police officers. They come up to me 
at times if I'm giving a program or they call me and they say to me, your book, your program saved my life. I was thinking of eating my gun. That's an expression that they yeah. use for suicide. I was thinking of eating my gun. And then I, I heard you speak. I went to your program. I read your book. And I feel like you saved my life. And there's a power to this material. And I say that not to brag because obviously it's, it's not my material. It's Torah. It's the same material that we all have. I happen, thank God, to have been put in a position where I can share that I'm the conduit. But none of it is mine. And none of this leads to any kind of egotism on my part. So this material, I would share it with them. And there's a power to it, the raw, sheer power of Torah to illuminate the darkest places and to bring people out of that. I've seen it. I myself don't even believe the, the sheer, the, the extent of it at times. But then what happened was because I was doing my stuff, I was doing these gigs and I was going places, I was on panels, et cetera. And I was working with a lot of police psychologists. I would hear ideas and every once in a while I would start to stray. I would hear an idea and I would incorporate it into my repertoire. I'd be talking and at some point I realized that Part of what I was giving was psychological stuff, insights, and my presentations didn't have power anymore because that's not my bag. That's not my expertise. There are other people who are far better qualified to dispense those kind of insights than I am. I'm just a novice. And it's like I read some books and I heard somebody and I thought about it and it seemed to fit and I'm using my common sense, but who cares? So after I realized that I was diluting the power of my presentation, I went back and I resolved never to stray into those areas again. It's been a lot of years since I made that mistake. And what I do nowadays is I give them the benefit. I take Torah. I never present it as Torah. I distill it and express it, as I mentioned before, into universal terms. Sometimes when I give presentations in the Jewish community, I'll give examples to my audiences uh, I was speaking, I spoke at Princeton last night to a group of, uh, of Jews. They asked me to come speak for Hanukkah. So I gave them an example of a piece of Torah, something from the Medrash, very, very powerfully directly talking about Hanukkah. And I talked about how I distilled it. I used it in a situation of a police officer in tremendous, tremendous pain. And after all the police psychologists had said all the things that they had to say, then I gave this officer the, in the benefit of this insight expressed in a very universal kind of way, very you know general way that he could hear. Um, and then my presentation, my material is really, really powerful. Can we hear that insight just by way of example? Sure. I was part of a team of people that we were dealing. We were giving a kind of a, an overview of how insights, different kind of insights, different tools can help police officers. So as it turned out, right as we were giving this presentation, we were housed in a particular place. There was a police officer who had been involved in an, an officer-involved shooting, is the term they use. And he had, he'd killed someone just, you know, mere hours earlier. So somebody said, well, talk to him, you know, say, say something here. What, what would you say? So the police psychologists who were in attendance, they said a number of really insightful kinds of things. And they were talking about the fact here was this officer in a lot of pain, tremendous, tremendous anguish. He had just taken a human life, just killed somebody. So each person in attendance, each panelist gave some insight they talked about, you know, the importance of the rule of law or the, you know, the need to protect other people, focusing on the people whose lives had been saved, had been protected, et cetera. And each panelist tended to conclude with, so, you know, you really, you shouldn't be in all that much pain. I mean, you, I hope that will comfort you. So it was my turn. And I remembered there's a medrash. The rabbis in the medrash asked the question, why did God choose? Why didn't he work out that the hashkacha, the divine providence was such that it was the Hashmanayim who were involved to take up the mantle to fight against the Yavanim and the Mityavnim, the Greeks and the Hellenists. Why them of all people? Why did God choose them? And the Medrash answers and says that God said, you know, there's a lot of killing that's going to need to be done. 
This is a battle to liberate the temple and to restart the avoda in the Beit HaMikdash to uh, begin the service anew and for the integrity of the Jewish people to root out the influences, the Hellenist influence that's trying to dilute, to corrupt, to taint and pervert the Torah ideology, we have to engage in war. Nobody enters into it excited. Everyone was reluctant. The Hashanahim were very, very reluctant to do that. But once they took up the battle, so God said, who should do that? Who should be involved in fighting and killing? God said, the Hashmanayim are Kohanim. And as Kohanim priests, they do the Avoda. They're involved in the sacrificial service in the temple. And Kohanim have an obligation to remain in a state of Tahara all the time. The two states, ritual purity or impurity, have to do with engaging with death or celebrating life. Tahara is a recognition of the sanctity of life, and it's avoiding death, the, the philosophy of death, the taint of death, the psychological imprint of death at all costs. So the Medrash attributes these words to God. He said, the Kohanim more than anybody, because they're always in a state of ritual purity, because they understand the sanctity of human life, they understand more than anybody. They celebrate the value of every human life. God said, I need someone who has to go and be involved in killing. You know who has to do that? Somebody who will mourn each and every life lost. So the Medrash concludes and says, that the Kohanim, the Hashemim, went out to battle and they agonized. Every time they took a human life, it killed them. It killed them. And in fact, some Rishonim, some medieval commentators say that the eight days of Hanukkah, why is it eight days long? The holiday is eight days because after the war was over, the battles had ended, the Hashemim sat Shiva for seven days for their victims, the people, their enemies, the people with whom they had engaged in battle. After which, only on the eighth day did they start pressing new oil. So I thought about that statement in the Medrash. So I said to this young police officer, I said to him, you know what? I'm really happy you're in pain. I don't want you to think that I'm being insensitive to you. And I said, and I'm sad that you are in pain, but I'm happy. I said, what that tells me is that you understand the sanctity of human life. Woe to us if you have the badge and the uniform and the gun and the ability to kill people and it doesn't bother you. I said, thank God you're a person. You understand the value of life. Even of a would-be bank robber who who tried to kill you and tried to kill other people, I said, you still revere their lives. That's what I do. I take the Medrash, I take Chazals, I take the Torah literature, and I distill it into terms. I didn't have to tell this fellow about Kohanim, Tara, about the Avodah, the Beit HaMikdash. I didn't tell him about any of that stuff. But I gave him the bottom line, the core idea, the kernel of this piece of Torah. Every piece of Torah has diamonds, universal ideas at the core of at every single one. That's an example. Awesome. Rabbi, what do you think is next for you? You've done so many different things. You have done the outreach on campus. You have been the congregational rabbi. You have been a shepherd to law enforcement, the FBI, and now more broadly. Is there anything professionally or personally still on your bucket list that you're looking towards? You don't strike me as the type to sort of rest on his laurels uh, or on his bat cycle as it may be. That's a great question. One of the things that I think probably emerges from my story is that I've never gone looking for just about any of these things. I mean, I've been very blessed. I've been involved in a number of things that are just kind of super cool. Um, The things that I've seen dealing with the law enforcement community or the the kind of places that the Batman book has uh, has taken me, I never would have anticipated and I never really could have looked forward to them. I, I couldn't have crafted or designed any of them. What I've done throughout is to try to learn as much Torah as I can and to say in a general way, I say to the Almighty, you know, I'm dressed up and ready to go or I'm getting there. I'm trying real hard. So I think what happens very often for all of us, one of my teachers used to say that in life, a person needs mazel. 
So that's a truism. It seems like, seems like a cliche or something. So he says, wait, wait, Mazel stands for, it's an acronym. The MEM stands for Mokom. Zion stands for Zman. So there's a place and a time. That's the Almighty's part of it. We never know when that invitation from destiny is going to arrive. But he would say to us, what you need, our part of it is the Lamed, the Limud. He said, make sure you learn as much Torah as you can. And what I found in life is that when I'm learning, if I simply make it known to the universe and I say, I want to do something, I want to contribute. So what happens is usually within a few hours, some crazy invitation shows up. So what I'm doing nowadays is I'm trying to learn. I'm involved a lot in writing. I've got a few books that I'm working on right now. Um, I've written some books on marriage over the years. So I am writing a kind of a comprehensive work on marriage that's uh, taking up a lot of my time. And uh, I'm excited about that. I have a number of writing projects. And as I do what I do, invitations just seem to arrive. So I'm excited and curious more than anybody else. Anybody out there in, uh, in, of your viewers who are wondering, like, you know, what is the next thing? I'm wondering that more than anybody else. So uh, I'll let you know. I hope you'll invite me back to the next installment. Well, we're so thrilled that you answered our invitation. And it's really been a pleasure and an honor to hear your incredible story, uh, your inspiring journey. And thank you so much, Rabbi Kerry Friedman, for joining us. It's been a pleasure and an honor. Thank you so much. I, I wish you all the best. Good luck. Keep doing a great job. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash JewsYouShouldKnow. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.